Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So, here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. And I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And today we're playing back the idea of having one of our listeners uh, deliver among us a topic. We will do what we can with. And today we have Paul Zygismundi with a topic. But I just found out um, that Andrew had been privy to this topic for some hours. What? Which creates a kind of... Yeah, I know, I know. It creates an interesting kind of distortion. No, no, I'm the topic. I did not tell him the topic. It's not another topic. I could have changed it. I may have changed it. Oh, oh may have changed it? Changed it. Switching rules. So he doesn't know. Yeah, we... Uh, oh, really? It's super interesting. You told me... You told me to... This would be the first time Andrew was hearing this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. Unless it's not a switcheroo, I don't know. So Andrew, I don't know if this is the one I mentioned to him. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So Andrew thinks that he knows what the topic is. He so he's been running. Yeah, he's been running with a bone that <laughs> actually is not part of the kill. But, uh, I'm but not you sure. know, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I mentioned this. In passing to him or not, I, I I don't think he thinks it's this one. Okay. What do you think it is, Andrew? So that's. I thought maybe it was something along the lines of utopia. What is Man. he saying? He's saying that he thinks that it might be something along the lines a really good topic. Yeah. Utopia. No. No. Well, you know, actually, yes, yes, yes. Actually, no. I think he's he's. He's probably hitting it. Yeah, it, it's not, the word is not utopia, but, uh, you can probably, he, I think he must know in some way because this, this is very related to utopia. Ah, uh, so um, does Scott. Well, right. so, you know, so it's in the so utopia it's not because, family. Right, so, All right, well, let's, no. let's go forward. Okay. I mean, it feels as. Uh, introduce him? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, Andrew, now, Tell us about Paul Sigismundi. I'd like to introduce my good friend, Paul Sigismundi. We have known one another probably for about 17 years at this point. Uh, Paul 
was born in Santa Barbara, California, in Southern California. He attended um, Berkeley for his undergraduate degree and then got a PhD in astrophysics. Huh. Um, did some did some original research in um, red shifting stars, if my memory serves correct. And then segued into um, to private education, teaching at various independent schools in Colorado and California, and then in New York City. And that's where we met. In addition to being an incredible physicist and also um, an extraordinary teacher, Paul is a very talented singer and songwriter and has recorded a larger number of albums than anyone I know. And huh. the, the albums that he's recorded um, are really good. And many of them were produced by um, Mitch Easter, who was an early um, producer of R.E.M. So Paul goes down to the Carolinas, to North Carolina, to be reported by Mitch Easter on a fairly regular basis before the pandemic. That is Paul Sigismondi. He has a great heart, and uh, I trust his vision. I think he's a very good, good man in addition to being a great one. In my pantheon of friends. Thank you. Here, here, I second that as an associate, erstwhile associate of Paul's. So, which I, I can't hear. Right. So, just for the folks at home, Paul couldn't hear any of that because mm. of our sophisticated, some might say Byzantine system of technological, <laughs> you know, wrapping it up, you know, and delivering. Here we go. So, Paul, um, you can speak now and deliver. Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Oh, Kaczynski. Kaczynski. No, no, Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Yeah, there's also the novelist Jersey Kaczynski, right? Is that his name? Jersey Kaczynski. Yeah. Being there, right? Isn't that his famous novel? Isn't there a hockey player named Kaczynski? Oh, but uh, I thought there's about gotta be. Phobia. I mean, I, I don't know. Am I supposed to be commentating that the, the Unabomber wasn't 100 percent completely bad, <laughs> crazy, and that there was some sorts of lie? You know, a guy, a guy was obviously smart, but but kind of out there, you know, his critique was that the democratization of technology was a sort of utopian uh, principle, then it was problematic because it was, was sort of... He was against that, that utopia. Right. thought of utopia as the word. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thing is connecting, except that Paul is disconnected. Dance away from us. Just as, I guess... In these long and complicated decades since the Unabomber came out, you know, was pulled out of his cabin 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yeah. Has it been 25 I can't remember years where ago? I was. I know. It's like, well, I feel like we're in a Don DeLillo novel. <laughs> Something happened and we don't know when it was. And I think it was the uh, the mid 1990s. Yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds right. Like shortly after the publication of the manifesto. Mm-hmm. 20 plus ago. I do remember the Unabomber manifesto um, making its rounds. I remember seeing, I guess it must have been a facsimile of it, a copy of it somewhere. Oh, you mean as a book? Um, more as a pam- pamphlet 
printed out. This would have been in the very early days of the web. I think maybe we need some Unabomber to blow up our computers, uh, start over again, and just... I mean, there's an irony here somewhere that uh, we're trying to discuss the Unabomber, but our uh, computers don't work well enough to discuss it. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally a little bit taken sideways by trying to deal with the Unabomber because I'm not all that familiar with him and his scree or, you know, his position um, uh, at all. I, I mean, I just don't know that much about this subject. Well, maybe I can describe it best as I understand it, unless you want to, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. The Unabomber went to Berkeley in the 60s, I think. And uh, he was kind of, he got a PhD in physics, mathematics, something like that. And so he was around all that ferment of the late 60s. And he rejected uh, Marxism and gradually came to feel that the problem with the world was uh, ultimately technology. That technology was the evil, not the ruling class. Sparrow. Yeah. I just would like to interject something um, into your um, very thoughtful remembrance of Theodore (laughs) Kaczynski that I think uh, is important. uh, Uh Just that he, I wouldn't reduce his story to this um, fun fact, but I think it's it's worth um, expressing. Uh, Theodore Kaczynski, while he was at Berkeley, did um, play some role in the acid tests. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. That were occurring there. And, um, According to, uh, you know, like like the two of you, I have no notes here, but according to someone, um, that was a that was a like a key moment in his life, uh, and mm-hmm. he he underwent an expansion of consciousness. I don't know if it led to his agrarian life trajectory, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it was described as a seismic shift of consciousness that occurred while he was doing his degree. That there was and, that, and I'll say one thing based on my extremely limited uh, experience with LSD. I took it twice, once inadvertently, uh, as maybe I've described here. And my experience does make you very conscious of the weird energy of technology, you know, that drug, even though the drug itself is a kind of technological product, or maybe for that reason. You become very aware of how artificial the world is that we live in. And a lot of people who are good LSD trippers will go to natural settings to take it. Like that's the smart thing to do is my understanding. So it could be that, you know, while on acid, he had this understanding. Come to think of it, the the day after I took acid the first time, I was walking in Inwood Park across from my parents' apartment and i looked through the window at my parents watching television and i realized television is insane i will never watch television ever again it's an artificial uh, electric energy coming into your household telling you what to think and you stare at it as if it's some kind of revelation and and i pretty much have turned against tv the rest of my life except the problem is now on the internet, it's very hard to say what is TV and what isn't TV, i.e. Netflix, I've decided it's not TV, which is probably untrue. I, I, what you're saying is fascinating, and I, I do think it, 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 it um, is worth thinking about. I had misspoke. Um, Kaczynski was part of the acid tests as an undergraduate at Harvard. 
and he huh. was had had been personally introduced to Timothy Leary that they their paths mm-hmm. crossed. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. right? Because of course Leary was famously at Harvard in the '60s, and also uh, you know uh, his assistant who became Ramdas, Richard oh. Albert. Yes, but those. But usually, when people use the phrase "acid tests," that refers to the merry pranksters to the merry giving prank- out uh, LSD and Kool Aid uh, at these concerts in the West Coast. Doesn't usually refer to the experiments of Leary. So eventually, Kaczynski decided uh, technology was was at the center of our problem as a culture. He started making these homemade bombs, sending them to pretty random technological targets, you know, like a video store or like a computer, you know, equipment store. He definitely did not go for the central corridors of power. And uh, people died. I think at least one person died. These bombs exploded. He was a pretty good bomb maker for a guy living in a little log cabin in where? Uh, Montana? Yeah, Montana. And what what uh, gave him away was, you know, uh, like all mad geniuses or whatever he was, he uh, had to write his manifesto, which was published in the New York Times. They published it for free. He sent it to them. They published it. And then his brother who was a super weirdo of a similar ilk to Kaczynski, his brother was living, as I recall, in a hole in the ground. I remember the video. I remember the photograph of it in the New York Times. He was living in a hole covered with a metal sheet in Texas, as I recall. And you really find yourself thinking, like, what was their parenting like? And somehow the brother noticed his brother's style, and like a Greek uh, tragedy, should he turn in his brother as the uh, evil Unabomber? And and there were pictures of the Unabomber in a hoodie. Yeah, He was one of the first of the hoodie uh, villains of the 20th century life. And, uh, and but I don't think the, the photo was very, I mean, the drawing was very helpful, but the brother turned in his, the brother whose name I don't remember, turned in Mr. Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and uh, the cops came and got him and put him in prison. And I was just thinking about him the other day because my CD player died. So I started listening to NPR and there's a show, Freakonomics Radio, Stephen Dubner. The 1960s have punctured a hole in our present and Mm. it's like leaking battery acid all (laughs) over everything we're saying, trying (laughs) to say, unable to say the Unabomber is here. I'm just saying that there's some sort of distortive field and the sound just um, doesn't sound right. And, uh, I, I and I think the re- recording has also been fragmentary. Feel like the ice is broken up, and we're all drifting away on different sheets. You know, oh. and darkness is coming on the world, but the Unabomber has left us. Okay, so here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We've taken a short break to collect our thoughts, and Aunt Barrow. 
I believe you have a short summation or have a sense of um, helping people to know Theodore Kaczynski biographically. Well, now I've been studying him a little bit, so I know actually a little more about it. He was a young prodigy, a brilliant kid from a working class, obviously Polish family. Everything went wrong with him. Well, first of all, he got hives very young. And uh, he had to be isolated from everyone else. As an infant, I think, he got hives, very serious hives. And that seemed to have affected him. But the biggest problem was that he skipped a grade. He was so smart. He had an IQ of, oh, I mean, I talk about him as if he's in the past tense. He has an IQ of 167. So he skipped a grade and then he was too young for everybody else in the grade, it began to be bullied. He became a mathematics genius, got a PhD. He was in, went to Harvard, then I think got the doctorate at Berkeley. No, University of Michigan. Okay, thanks. University of Michigan, which is also where he sent the first bomb, right, isn't it? And um, he decided that he was sick of uh, Western civilization. He was just going to live all the way far from human beings, build a cabin, live simply, do odd jobs. He had an old bicycle and he went to the local library and read classics in their original languages. And then, this is outside of Lincoln, Montana, and then one day he goes to this kind of favorite area where he would hang out. He writes, it's kind of rolling country, not flat. But when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply in to cliff-like drop-offs. And there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-day's hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. He comes there, and there's a road. They've built a road through it. And he never recovered from that. Then he decided, I can't escape. I can't live a peaceful, quietist life. I'm going to start sending bombs and blowing up various people involved with this technological society. And he starts sending the bombs early, 78, I think. Yeah, seven, between 78 and 95, he kills three people, injures 23 with these uh, clever little bombs. But he has to go too far and publish his manifesto, which appears in 95, in the Washington Post. I remember it in the New York Times, but I think maybe the Times reprinted it. His brother, whose name is David, reads the manifesto and he's like, I know this writing style. <laughs> so this is the perfect subject for literary people like us. Here's a guy who's uh, essentially one of the most brilliant the biggest FBI manhunt in the history of the FBI brought down by his literary style. And uh, they catch him, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he makes a plea deal, plea bargain. He gets life imprisonment without parole. He says, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to uh, plead insanity. And um, so uh, there he is in prison for the rest of eternity. Now he's um, 78. He's 78 years old. 78 years old right now, yeah. Huh. 
And did you see his father killed himself? His father, Theodore, I guess his namesake, uh, in 1990 committed suicide. But he had terminal lung cancer, don't forget. It does point or echo what maybe were some early fishers um, within the family life of the Kaczynskis. Uh-huh. Um, some mental illness. Well, I mean, his father committed suicide, and my understanding yeah. is this brother was also quite eccentric and a bit of a misfit. Actually, the brother ends up living in uh, Albany. He's not so far from where you and I live, Sam. He's kind of in our like that's interesting general that's... area. But at one point, he was apparent. I remember this photograph vividly that the brother David was living in a hole in the ground in Texas, covered over by a metal sheet, which, you know, most people don't live in places like that. Sparrow, you said something that really struck me. Oh, which was what? Well, just in general, I'm interested in thinking more about the figure of the prodigy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was reading a book recently Mm. by Andrew Solomon. And the book mm. is called Far From the Tree. Mm. And it's about um, different identity groups that um, are often thought about as uh, disabled. Like there's a chapter on dwarf dwarfism. There's a chapter on Down syndrome. There's a chapter mm. on criminality. There's, there's a, a chapter on mm. uh, autism and one on schizophrenia. Huh. Um, identity communities that historically have been pathologized or um, I, I guess... Um, thought of purely in terms of sickness mm-hmm. and disability. And he includes a chapter on the prodigy. Oh, uh-huh. Because the, yeah. the prodigy um, rarely turns out well. In mm-hmm. And he was struck that uh, in his research that so many parents want their children to be prodigies, but right. the reality of it is often pretty dark, where so many mm-hmm. other parents don't want to have, say, um, a kid with um, a more classic disability, but that ends up potentially being a new category of love and positive and generative in its own way. Yeah, very often, right? I mean, that's uh, my, you know, because I worked with developmentally disabled people for something like 18 years. And, um, and that was my experience that particularly Down syndrome are sort of famous for this, but all sorts of developmentally disabled people they kind of bring out the best in everyone around them, in the parents, in the, the caregivers, usually. Yeah. Yeah, it's striking, right? And it's striking how the prodigy is this coveted title, but it's it's so um, ridden with difficulty, especially later on, that the, the kids are almost never socialized with age mates, yeah. that they're, they're raised and socialized with adults. And then they get to adulthood themselves. And um, they really are adrift. They they struggle in particular as social beings, according to Andrew Solomon's um, read of um, many prodigies that he interviewed, including Leon Botstein. Leon Botstein, president of Art College, is one of the subjects. But I don't remember if um, Solomon offers uh, much detail about Botstein as a specific case study. His focus is more on these general observations. Not that... His prodigy status would explain what he ended up doing, but um, I think it's there in the mix. Oh, right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. A person who lives alone in a cabin and kills other people remotely, doesn't even 
go up to them. Seems like a person may be lacking with a, in a few social skills. It's, yeah, not, it's possible. Uh, and I wonder, here's a cynical thought, that maybe it's a power relationship uh, issue that you're around a Down syndrome person. You think, well, this person is definitely stupider than me. Therefore, I can be very kind to this person, and that will show what a noble being I am. Whereas everyone's intimidated by by prodigies. Everyone feels this person is way above me. This person has superhuman intelligence. They feel inferior, and then they get resentful. Even if the kid is, it happened to me. I had a, a prodigy, chess prodigy, uh, what would he be? I guess kind of a cousin. My uncle's son is a cousin. And he, uh, he beat me at chess, you know, when he was 12 and I was 18 or something. And, you know, I immediately resented him. Why? Because of a stupid ego, you know, not even consciously. You know? Sure. Like, who does he think he is? Smart well, aleck kid. You were 18 and he was 12. Sure. And I understand. I understand what you're describing. Yeah. It's hard to be. And, and prodigies are rarely nice people. In my experience, I was struck also by Kaczynski not self-identifying as insane. Oh yeah, that's interesting. And yeah. I think that's the you know that's worth like touching on. I think because mm-hmm. a person who chooses to randomly kill a number of people for illustrating, advertising, for advocating a certain position um, relative to people that you really don't get along with anyway, you know, which is general society. I think that that's mad. You know, I think that there is something deeply disequilibrium, um, asymmetrical, um, you know, disturbed about that. Andrew, would you concur? As I, of course, it's completely sociopathic. I think he he was. But then, uh, what about uh, Che Guevara and uh, Fidel Castro? What about all revolutionaries? They kill people for some higher purpose, for some uh, philosophy, philosophical, ideological reason. Are they? Every one of them is insane. Mao Zedong's insane. From my perspective. Yeah, I would say that that <laughs> is a manifestation of insanity. And of- what about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson? You, you ever go to England? People say to you, boy, you Americans, you hate paying taxes, huh? You couldn't pay another half penny tax on the tea. Had to start a whole revolution over that. These are people, uh, George Washington is fighting for it, killed people for an idea. Thomas Jefferson killed people for an idea. Our whole country is based on killing people for an idea. That started the country. There'd be no country. if they, So those people are insane, too? <laughs> well, my understanding is that the revolution, in no small measure, was based on false information. Um, was based on a set of lies regarding mm-hmm. the actual ad- administration of the Americas by England. He had an ideology that he was the only adherent. I mean, the, 
He didn't have anybody to do the dirty work for him. The Unabomber didn't. He didn't have soldiers, you mean. I have a question, and I think it's an intriguing question. Uh-huh. I think that this question could yield some real depth. If you compare someone like Charles Manson mm. to Theodore Kaczynski, mm. right? Um, both of them, I think there is some sort of utopian impulse there or a desire to start a revolution, Mm -hmm. pathological behavior that concludes in death. I guess seven people for Charles Manson through his family, and then maybe about three, you said, Sparrow for Peter Kaczynski. Why is it that Manson has been um, amplified into this dark Mm -hmm. cult figure with the whole industry of, of books and movies and Hmm. biopics and documentaries and studies and um whereas Kaczynski has not I um, think it has to do good I question mean, I think offhand has to do with sex that you know if you sit alone in a cabin being a celibate uh people are not that fascinated by you but if you have like a hundred gorgeous hippie women that are all sleeping with you and we'll do anything for you. We'll literally crawl. Did you see this? Where like he was on trial and like four of his disciples like crawled across L.A. like 10 miles or something on their knees <laughs> during the trial. And these are pretty good looking young hippie women. Uh, you know, I don't know. There's something about that that it appeals more to maybe just to my fantasy life. ha. <laughs> But I think to lots of people's fantasy life. Whereas well, that, who wants to be a, a nut in a cabin? It's just not It's <laughs> not a very American aspiration. Yeah. I mean, you know, in our brief recess, I did a search for the Unabomber Manifesto oh, online. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, the technical horizon has been a bit frayed. I couldn't find it on Amazon. I found it on Barnes and Noble. And <laughs> yeah, it was published by uh, an erstwhile friend of mine, Bo Friedlander. Um, shortly after it came out, I think it was in like 98 or something like that. But the copies of that book don't seem to be available. Hmm. And yeah, one distinction between Manson and Kaczynski is Manson didn't write a book. Kaczynski did, and yet Kaczynski is, does not have, you know, he's not in print, you know? I mean, I think you can get electronic version. Otherwise, mm. you, you know, Ironically. I saw one copy of his manifesto selling online for $900. Yeah. $900? Huh. I've read it. I read it at some point, maybe a few years after it was published. And I remember finding the first few pages sort of intriguing and well-written. And my only other memory is that I um, felt lost pretty quickly and uh, it just ceased making sense. Huh. Um, but maybe that's really when I should have started leaning into it and reading deeper. But instead, I just put it down and never returned to it. Hmm. I, the other day I was listening to NPR, which I'm doing because my CD player broke. And uh, they have this show called Freakonomics Radio. And the host is Stephen Dubner, who's, I think, the co-writer of the book Freakonomics. And Stephen Dubner lived up here in Phoenicia for a, a brief time. I think he and his wife went crazy living in this isolated life here. But during that time, 
uh, Dubner interviewed the Unabomber. He was the only journalist to interview the Unabomber, as I recall, for Time magazine. And I ran into him at the art gallery and I said, so what's the Unabomber like? I wish I could remember more clearly what he said, but he did not seem to think the Unabomber was crazy. That was my vague memory that, you know, he, wow. he, I think he thought he was an interesting, articulate guy. And I think that might be part of what's fascinating about um, Manson is like Manson seems to be really a schizophrenic. I mean, his ideas are so ridiculous. How could people follow him? Whereas the Unabomber like weirdly makes sense. Like the Unabomber, as I recall from reading or skimming the manifesto, is just saying this technological civilization is ruining all of us. And this was before the Internet. And it just seems I think it just makes people nervous because it seems sort of true. You know, and I think that makes people uncomfortable. That was my that was my sort of thesis uh to my own question, my response to my own question was that there was something genuinely threatening about the um, Unabomber's manifesto, and hence it was never really enlarged to something where Manson's mytho-poetic universe is so fantastical and scary and dark, of course, but it, I don't think it presents the sort of challenge to the whole system that the Unabomber and his manifesto did. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, Man Manson was a criminal, like a guy, really a lifetime criminal, who kind of dressed himself like a up like a hippie, and he had a sort of sociopathic power over people, which, you know, seems like a logical thing that's going to happen during times of dislocation. But, but Kaczynski was like a brilliant thinker and an academic who, you know, he went the opposite direction. He was kind of a a person who started out as an intellectual, not as a, a madman, or not as a criminal. Another thing that I was going to mention is that I think around that the 90s, right, there was a whole spade of um, anti-government figures and, and groups that were um, getting a lot of media attention at the very least, like the Branch Davidians, mm -hmm. David, David Koresh in Waco, Texas, and the situation in Ruby Ridge, um, the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building by Timothy McVeigh, um, and also the Unabomber, um, a wave of anti-government, anti-federalist, charismatic, spooky figures who um, that in that that tradition has continued, right? Yeah, I think it's Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, and the, the bombing of federal building in Oklahoma. You know, That's right. Oklahoma. People point toward as the beginning the neo right what, what, Was there um, a racial dimension to the Unabomber's manifesto? Was there... Huh. I, I know that. Um, That's a good question. I know there was in Manson that he wanted right. to start a race war against the white people, in which yeah. the poor and black black population gathered together, right, and overturned. My understanding, I think my sis, my daughter explained this to me recently because she listens to some podcast called "You Must Remember This," and uh, she said that um, Manson was going to start a race war. 
the black people would win the race war. Meanwhile, he and his family would go underground, physically underground, into tunnels. Then once the revolution was over, they would come out and they would direct the new society because black people are not advanced enough to run a society. You know, this was uh, oh, this so my understanding. It was full of racism then. It was the white savior. Yeah. Um, okay. In the dystopic context. And then also, I just want to say that I just saw this on Wikipedia that early in his pr- imprisonment, Kaczynski befriended Ramzi Youssef and Timothy McVeigh, the perpetrators of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, respectively. The trio discussed religion and politics and formed a friendship, which lasted until McVeigh's execution in 2001. So So it's almost like a comic book. (laughs) My relationship to the Unabomber has changed, you know, since uh, Dr. Zygismundi dropped this on us. And... I don't know. I really look forward to hearing what you guys have to say and what you've found in this intervening time. And, you know, I wrote down a few notes and maybe we should start again. I mean, I was just saying to Andrew before we recommenced that uh, I like his style of writing, the Unabomber. I'm rereading his manifesto, his famous manifesto. He writes clearly, simply. You can understand what he's saying. He doesn't write like most uh, fanatics or most leftists, to use a term that he uses. You know, he's got his analysis, and I can follow it clearly. Oh, well, pass on the news, brother. Oh, like (laughs) what his analysis is? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that we're ready to put a foot into this text, the manifesto. There was one thing, just to circle back, because I did was able to listen to some of your rap, Sparrow, and that yeah. is that it actually wasn't specifically his brother David who fingered Ted. It was uh, it was David's wife Linda, whom had, who had never met Ted, um, but through letters and through David talking, had a profile of who Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was. And he was very deeply... And that's when they entered into that literary forensics, um, which they undertook on their own, hiring, it seems, a private investigator or a friend of Linda's, who was a female private investigator. And so they did the early construction you know, juxtaposing letters from Ted to his timeline relative to bombs and things like that. And um, though finally it was David who, on visiting their family house in Illinois, coincident with his mother's dying days, came upon some letters from Ted and then he looked at those letters and saw like very specific correspondences that finally tipped the mitt, you know, and that's the point at which he contacted the FBI and started the ball rolling. Or actually, I guess they'd already contacted him, but he found those letters and sent them to the FBI. And that lit the fire that exploded Ted's anonymity. Hmm. Anonymity. As Sarah, Sparrow and I were discussing, um, when Sam, when you were not not in the, the grid, yeah. 
um, was a prolific writer. And I, I read somewhere that the FBI pulled an estimate of 21,000 pages of text out of his cabin located outside of Lincoln, Montana. A lot of text, yeah. 21,000 mm-hmm. pages. A lot of that, I suspect probably a lot of that volume is tied up with a numeric code that he evolved to hmm. chronicle his bombings and that are pretty damning in which he bemoans the early bombs in that they didn't lead to more destruction, more maiming, more fingers blown off, more shrapnel wounds, but also hmm. that they didn't kill. Hmm. Yeah, and he and that's a theme with throughout that diary, that bombing diary and these numerical code is some um, mm. his disappointment with not being not having caused more harm. But I think he didn't believe that he was actually stopping industrial civilization, what he calls industrial civilization, by sending the bombs. I think he felt that they were symbolic statements. I mean that's what I think I read in Wikipedia. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't that deluded to think he's going to slowly, you know, stop the gears of civilization by killing five or six people. He he just wanted to make a statement and sort of galvanize public opinion against uh, this mechanization that he was so upset about. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he actually, you know, felt that he was conducting a war exactly. That's my feeling. But maybe he felt... It gets more press if somebody dies. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, my understanding is that he felt that the people that he was maiming and killing were a small portion of the destruction and murder in its broadest sense that the technological society perpetrates on itself. Um, that hmm. it's nothing to the destruction that not only in, you know, currently or in the past, but also as Ted seemed to feel was what we were in for in the future, hmm. which in some ways, 25 years hence from the writing of the manifesto is, has proved out in certain respects, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that he says early in the manifesto that I just read is seemed to be saying that in our culture, in our society, the effects of industrialization are mostly psychological in terms of depression and alienation and kind of uselessness in people's minds. But in the third world, they are physical. The, the suffering is physical as well as psychological. Mm-hmm. But he seems more concerned with the psychological suffering, kind of uh, of of Americans than about the third world. Uh, I don't know. That's what he seems yeah. to write about more. Yeah. Well, I think in part just to differentiate Ted's psychosis from his message, you know, delivered from a pretty highly evolved brain. Um, you know, with his 167-point IQ. But that I, I did want to touch back on his biography. I think there was a trifecta of damage hmm. that, that Ted suffered, you know, which you had mentioned, Sparrow, is that at, the, at nine months, 
he developed these hives that were inexplicable, that there was no medical diagnosis for this epidural invasion. And so he was put into a hospital at nine months old during the Second World War. And his parents visited twice over that one week time. And they were only allowed to be there for two hours. So there were four hours within a period of seven days that this nine-month-year-old child or baby had interaction with the parents. And that otherwise, because of his condition, he was in isolation because they didn't know what it was. Mm. And his mom says that before that, he was a very cheerful, engaging child who would make eye contact with you. And when he was returned from the hospital, he was sullen, uh, not making eye contact, withdrawn, hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I consider that to be the first instance of a kind of experience that drove him, you know, to incarnate the way he did. The second was that he was declared a genius. I yeah. think it was in sixth grade. Uh, they did an IQ test, came up with that 167. He immediately bounced a grade and then subsequently bounced another grade so that oh, he yeah. was out of step with his cohort. He was always the little kid, you know, smaller, who had been selected by the system for special yeah. treatment. So he was put down. Prior to that, he was sort of, um, you know, a class leader, somebody people would turn to. He had a kind of a normal acculturation. After that, he was put out of sync. He was considered to be special and isolated. I consider that to be the second blow. And then yeah, the my third parents, blow. Uh, my, my parents uh, refused to let me uh, skip a grade. I was going to skip two grades also. Like the Unabomber, I don't think I'm uh, anywhere near as smart as the Unabomber, but uh, my parents didn't believe in it, and that's why I don't go around mailing bombs to people because I had, yeah. a, you know, a, not a pleasant but a slightly normal uh, socialization process. Yeah. Were well, you more than maybe Andrew and I by a few, you know, you know, a few move, you know, dings this way and that way? Hmm. seemed to have more of a profile that might have incarnated in that direction. Though <laughs> any of us might have, you know? Not all hmm. of us are maybe as bright as you and Ted. And then I think the third thing was this actual, he arrived at Harvard at the age of 16, a guy named Henry Murray, who Andrew, I understand, is a fairly prominent psychologist. Yes, he had I been in, in the OSS, and then after the war, yeah, after the war, he had been given a grant to perfect interrogation or to participate in the theater of interrogation. And this 16-year-old kid was subjected to psychological torture for three years. What do you mean? For As part three, of an experiment? Yeah, the conditions of the experiment were that Ted, at the beginning, wrote an essay in which he responded, or essay, he responded to a bunch of questions related to what made him happy, uh, what he projected as the portrait of a happy life, 
Hmm. what his he felt his psychological hurdles were in arriving at that place like you know he was asked to write you know with you know relatively voluminously about his sense of who he was and where his strengths were and weaknesses Hmm. and what he wanted out of life and then what happened is that he was paired with a law student and the law student took that self-generated profile of himself, of Ted, and used it to interrogate him and to break him down psychologically. Mm. And not like as a summer job, but this went on for three years. And well, um, what's, the, what's the idea of it, that, that this is some kind of an investigation the professor is conducting? Yeah, I can offer some background in that. Oh, okay. Excellent. Okay, so Henry Henry Murray is this um, towering figure at, at Harvard University, um, mid twentieth century. I think was active um, through the nineteen seventies, and he developed this area of academic psychology called personology. <laughs> Person personology, yeah, it's it's comical um, the title for it. But what he wanted to do is a move away from the um, theoretical presuppositions of psychoanalysis. Hmm. And develop a means to um, capture the fingerprint of who someone was in a way that was much more multidimensional when compared to a pretty myopic psychoanalytic approach, which would look at someone's sexual development, focus on early childhood. Um, the measure, um, the diagnostic or battery of tests that Henry Murray developed had quantitative parts, qualitative parts. Um, as Sam mentioned, you would ask question, sorry, answer questions about what you valued. You would try to um, get down many memories that you had. Uh, it was just very, very involved. It took weeks to do. So uh, each subject would, would, would create a lot of data. about. And I think the idea maybe is that Kaczynski was a prodigy. He was a great prize to this psychologist. And Murray, who wanted to know, well, what makes this guy tick? He's a, uh, he's beyond the ordinary, something like that. You think maybe? Very much so, and it just so happens that one of Henry Murray's best known works is this uh, paper in which he develops a theory of the Icarus type. <laughs> Icarus, referring to the figure from Greek mythology, young men with extraordinary talent who are able to fly very high and then crash and burn. And he uh, he based this theory, the Icarus type, on someone at Harvard, a young man who he um, who he studied. But I do I wonder, I believe it was Theodore Kaczynski. You don't believe? I, I don't believe so. I wonder if it's a self fulfilling prophecy by by studying Kaczynski and having this thesis, he somehow turned Kaczynski into that. Because if anyone is an Icarus, I'd say by most people's standards, it would be him, the Unabomber. Right. It also sounds as though, as though Henry Murray weaponized, if that's the right, hmm. analyzed speech. Hmm. Can you repeat that, Sam? You were this is somewhat speculative, but it sounds as though used it as a sought to turn it into a to you know 
for lack of a better word, explode a person's psychological integrity. Hmm. At least in this particular experiment, you know, that was underwritten by DOD and CIA. Um, oh, yeah? To, under, to do these experiments. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, so I, probably he didn't think he was doing that. Sam, why was it that the, the data produced through Henry Murray's um, record why was it handed off to a law student? Was that part of the larger experiment? Did you get a sense of that? I'm, I'm a bit confused. I don't know if Sam is there. I wish I remembered these things. I wrote, I, I wrote a paper on, on the paper in which he developed this um, Icarus type, but I have the foggiest recollection of anything that was in it. <laughs> That's what happens when we let go of things and stop thinking about them. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, sometimes like texts will come back to me. So I believe that law students were deployed because they were adept at cross-examination, you know, and it was good practice for Harvard law students mm. to, you know, interrogate a, a I know, a witness, you know, to get practice, hmm. I suppose. But how did the law student get the data? Was it handed to him by Henry Murray? Correct. It was oh. not only handed to them from Henry Miller, uh, excuse Henry. me, <laughs> by Henry <laughs> Murray, but, but Henry Murray also prepped the law students and gave them specific lines of attack, huh. literally and attack. And Henry Murray was employed by the United States government. He was employed by Harvard University, but his research, I understand, was underwritten by DOD and CIA, with whom he probably had, you know, early connections because he was an OSS. Oh, yeah, especially right. um, how you go about understanding the psychology of enemy leaders. Can you come up with a profile, a psychological profile, that would be um, helpful to the government? in its dealings with um, any number of countries, like Fidel Castro, for example, oh, Khrushchev. Oh, I know oh. that Henry Murray's um, approach to capturing personality was used um, in that, that arena. Huh. So it's sort of like this guy, Henry Murray, built into Ted's entrance into the world via Harvard a sense of himself as inherently an enemy of the state, perhaps, broadly mm. speaking. Because of this negative experience, he felt exploited, he felt traumatized, and associated the psychological abuse with the state because of Henry Miller's... I'm Henry Miller. Henry Murray's... <laughs> <laughs> because of Henry Murray's relationship to OSS and DOD. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, 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 definitely. And I, you know, but also keeping in mind that Ted later in life, and I guess, you know, up until the present, he disavows that that psychological study that he was very much a participant in had any on his psychological disposition or disintegration. Mm. You know what, Sam, just playing the role of an armchair psychologist for a moment, uh, I'm struck by the lines of um, the, the parallels, the lines of continuity between the first two catastrophes that you mentioned. I don't know if it intended this, but when it, that, that, that nine months when he was ex 
he was subject to some degree of medical experimentation, medical observation, separated from yeah. people. Um, I'm sure it was quite invasive. It was a lonely experience. And there, there are lines. A week, you're nine months old. You're pre-verbal. You can't even, mm. you're not even hustling around much on the floor. I mean, you're still a baby. And Wow. Interestingly, there was a colleague of Henry Murray, this guy by the name of Sylvan Tompkins, who was at Harvard at the same time teaching, who uh, did a lot of work on a concept called nuclear scenes, nuclear scenes. And he argued that there are these moments from infancy when we are pre-verbal, where we experience some degree of um, a catastrophic circumstance, a very confusing experience like the one Kaczynski had, and that that will forever alter us at the physiological level in terms of Mm. uh, eye contact, in terms of of physiognomy, how you hold yourself, subtle cues in the facial muscles, that because you're pre-verbal and you can't work it out through language, it becomes embodied, and it's traceable through the remainder of one's life, potentially. Kind of similar to Freud, right? It's sort of a Freudian theory in a way. Yeah, I guess the embodiment of the trauma, right? Hmm. But I think that Theodore Kaczynski was had a lot of struggles. And I, I was going to mention as well the struggle of being deemed a prodigy. It's something that I touched upon. But Andrew Solomon writes a lot about how just how much um, prodigy struggle that Everyone wants their kid to be a prodigy, but it's actually a trail of tears, especially through adulthood. Yeah, I had a couples therapist. My wife and I used to go to a couples therapist, this guy who was a former uh, Episcopal priest. Uh, and we would meet in this room, in this part of the, of the church that had been the priory where the priests used to live. Uh, this was like on 23rd Street or something, 21st Street. And one time I was, I was, I thought that I was starting to get famous and I told him about it and he was like happy for a moment and then he looked very concerned and he said, success is always a crisis. I've never forgotten that. Success is always a crisis. Yeah. And having that early success that Kaczynski had, you know, the success of being a prodigy, uh, it's a crisis. It's, it's, you know, it may be a good crisis in some ways. It may not be. I mean, I find myself thinking, just since I'm like kind of obsessed with social class, is uh, one way to look at the riddle of Kaczynski is here's a guy from a working class background who rockets up to Harvard, uh, gets a PhD very quickly, and then for some reason is compelled not to be a success, to live in a um, uh, log cabin in the middle of nowhere and, and live by performing odd jobs. And uh, almost as if he's saying, no, I don't want to betray my working class background. I don't want to become bourgeois. I, uh, I'm i embarrassed that I have reached this level of success. I want to go back down even below where my parents were to a kind of, uh, kind of uh, underclass almost, what, uh, the, what um, Marx calls the lumpen proletariat who would barely even have a job or kind of barely functional. So, you know, was there some kind of class guilt? It's very difficult to do better than your parents. Even though it's a compulsion in America, it's also a uh, a source of anxiety, I think. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation.
investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.